Good morning. I'd like to begin by saying thank you for having me this morning. I'm looking forward uh, to worshiping with you again. For those of you who don't know, I've uh, been with you before, and um, I'm thankful to be here today. If you will, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 18. And while you're turning there, I want to, if you can, try with me to exercise our imagination for a moment. If you can, put yourself in the shoes of a first century believer. You've heard many of the letters from the Apostle Paul. Maybe you've even touched them. You've heard the gospel. You've trusted in Christ. You've heard from Mark, perhaps even Matthew and Luke. And at your church, the Gospel of John is brought to be read for the Sunday morning worship service. And you've never heard this book before. And you know the Gospel, and you're looking to be fed from the reading of God's Word. Now, Christian, listen and hear the Word of the Lord from the Apostle whom Jesus loved. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not over comet. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Let us go now to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, what a great privilege it is to come here and read from your word kept for us for thousands of years that we might know you and love you, that we might see your glory that we might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be saved even more, that we might have life in his name. Father, what a great privilege it is to have this, your word. Because we all know 
We all know the grass withers and the flower fades, but Your Word stands forever. So Father, we pray, Lord, that You would take Your Word, You would hide it in our hearts, that we might not sin against You, and we might walk in Christ, that we might be one with You and one with Him. We ask this in His name. Amen. A few years ago, Mitt Romney was running for president. One of his claims, one of the things that he said, he set the record straight for the evangelicals, as it were. He said that Mormons believe in Jesus. In fact, they believe that he is the Son of God. I would venture to say that many of you are versed enough in the Bible to say on the surface that statement sounds right. Believe in Jesus. Believe that he is the Son of God. You ought to agree with those things. That's why he said it that way. But when the Mormons say they believe in Jesus and they believe that he is the Son of God, they mean something entirely different than what Christians say when they say that. Do you know that Muhammad The prophet of Islam trumpeted the importance of the man, Jesus. He called him a prophet, even going so far as saying he is sinless. Perhaps you've talked to people in this culture around you, and you realize that many people will call Jesus great. They will call him a good man, perhaps even a model citizen, the kind of person we should imitate. Many people like Jesus in those ways. But the question that we must wrestle with, the question we must answer, is that all that Jesus is? Is it enough to say we believe in Jesus, that he is the Son of God? It's the question that Jesus posed to his disciples, which is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He asked them, who is it that people say that I am? And you you remember the, the situation, there are various answers given. Some say Elijah, some say, some even said John the Baptist, reborn of all things. But then Jesus asked, but who is it that you say that I am? He gets right at the heart of the issue. Indeed, this is the answer that we must give. It is the answer to this question which divides the Christian from all other men. Most are comfortable saying when Jesus was a prophet or a a great man, perhaps even a worker of wonders. They, They don't mind saying he's a famous religious founder, But to the Christian, to the Christian, Jesus is the one. He is central. To the Christian, even though all these others answer matter, all these other answers matter, that he is a good man, a great, a model, all those things are important, they do not ultimately even come close to being what the Bible says Jesus is. And most of us here, I would venture to say, know the answer that Peter gave to Jesus. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that in and of itself is an astounding statement, isn't it? In in one simple sentence, Peter affirms that Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah and all those Old Testament texts that point to him are, are fulfilled in him and he's the king who comes to fulfill all those prophecies and yet Peter says you are the son of the living God, putting him in the same class as God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. For us, this statement is significant even as we say you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. However, because we are so far removed from the culture and the teachings that that Peter and 
all the disciples would have had growing up. We have not walked with Jesus. We, we really kind of have a hard time understanding it, don't we? we? We talk about Jesus as the Christ. We even say Jesus Christ because that's how the Bible frames him because it's in pointing out he's the Messiah. That's what the word Christ means. And yet we can say that and just think so little about what's wrapped up in those two words, that name and the title, the Christ. And we come to the Gospel of John and we know this is John the Apostle because five times he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. It is at the end of his gospel when Peter is walking along with Jesus and he looks back and it says the one whom Jesus loved was following along. And we know from the other gospels that's John himself. We get to these first 18 verses and we're not going all the way through these today. This is the prologue. This is John's introduction to the gospel. This is where he starts out. We're only going through a couple of verses. But this introduces John's gospel to the Christian. And it introduces John's gospel to the world as they may come across it. This passage, these first 18 verses are so significant that of this passage, R.C. Sproul says this, there is no other, no other New Testament passage ca that captured the attention of the first three centuries of Christian thinkers more than these verses. For three centuries, these were the most captivating passages. Why? Look at the verses. Think about all the things that John just loads into these first 18 verses. This section is absolutely essential for understanding the rest of the gospel and understanding who Jesus is. And now remember, when John writes, he's not writing as an innocent bystander. He's not trying to be the cold-hearted historian that's simply giving facts. He is giving facts. But he's giving facts with a purpose, just like every historian does. They tell the things they want you to hear and don't tell you the other things. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to read any historical books because it would be too overwhelming. But John is writing this true story. He's concerned with the truth throughout this book. And he's not going to tell you nearly as many of the things that Jesus did as the other gospels do. He's going to tell you more about who Jesus is. And he's writing to highlight important aspects of Jesus' work, his teaching, and his personhood. And he's writing with one goal in mind, one primary goal. Certainly it's to glorify God, but it's to glorify God by this. Chapter 20, verses 29 through 31. Right after Thomas, right after Thomas sees the Lord, risen from the dead, and, and sees his wounds. Remember he said, I, I won't believe unless I can touch the wounds, and Jesus appears, and what does Thomas do? He goes up and touches them? Nope. He falls flat on his face, and he says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says this, have you, Thomas, believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but they are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, that by believing you may have life in his name. So this brings us to that important question. What does he mean by saying that you believe in Jesus. He does not mean that you have mental agreement that Jesus is the Christ or the Son of God, right? Sorry, Mormons, you got, sorry, Mitt Romney, you got that wrong. That doesn't mean by saying we agree with that that you're on the same page and you're really believing in Jesus. He doesn't also mean just knowing doctrine. You know, I, I, took the liberty of going on your website and seeing 
seeing what your doctrinal statement looked like. And, and what I'm preaching on is really the first two points of your doctrinal statement on your website. I hope you get it. If you don't, go on there and look it up so that you might know that you're in agreement with Christian doctrine. It's not just knowing those things. Faith does involve knowledge. You have to know things. But it's more than that. You think of a child, first professes faith in Christ, is believing in Jesus. Do you think they're gonna know everything that a, that a theologian does who's at 70 years and been walking with Jesus for 50 years? No. Does that make their faith any less significant? No. However, however, being a Christian does mean seeking to know the truth of who Jesus is, growing in that truth, and not denying things as you come to the truth presented to you. Deny falsehood, believe the truth. So what does it mean to be believing, to believe that Jesus is? That word believe is the same word we get faith. What is faith? We like, we like that word, we use it in our culture. There's even a song, you gotta have faith, faith, faith. What, what? It has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Luther said this, faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. A living, bold trust, it's something that is always centered on Christ. In other words, when John writes his gospel, his goal is to demonstrate to you the glory of Jesus of Nazareth in such a way that you are drawn to him by the wonders of this glory and of his love. I mean, let me say that again. When John writes his gospel, his goal is to demonstrate to you, the listener, the glory of Jesus of Nazareth in such a way that you are drawn to Jesus by the wonders of his glory and his love. This glory is seen in three primary ways in verses one and two. Well, excuse me, in the Gospel of John. It's seen primarily in the person of Jesus whom John is going to present. Over and over, he wants you to know the person of Jesus. Know whom it is in which you have placed your belief. Number two, he wants you to see the works of Jesus and the glory that that shines for. Jesus says, says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then what does he do? He raises Lazarus from the dead. See those works and see God's glory in Christ there. And number three, he does it in his words. He shows you the glory of Christ in his words. Now these first two, the person of Jesus and the works of Jesus, really tie, really are tied together in verses one and two here. We start out the Gospel of John with two sentences. Let me read them one more time for us so you can have it fresh in your mind. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. We see two, two primary truths that we see here. The first thing we see is the eternal personhood of Jesus, and the second thing we see is that Jesus was God in the flesh. Now, I've, I've kind of got a little ahead of myself here, but we see the eternal personhood of Jesus and Jesus as God in the flesh. So look at the text. He begins with the term word. He uses that Term three times. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And he explains this Word with three statements. Think about these statements. The first statement, in the beginning. How does the Gospel of Matthew start? Do you remember? It starts the book of the genealogy of Jesus. He starts with Jesus' history, the, the history of how Jesus is traced back through Abraham. The Gospel of Mark 
starts the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark is concerned with, with Jesus and his work here on earth, much like Matthew is. Luke himself, you know the way Luke starts. We, we hear this every year. Luke starts with the story of the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist, his forerunner. But John's careful interest, as he starts his book, he doesn't start with, with the ministry of Jesus on earth. He starts in the beginning. He, he echoes Genesis for sure here. In the beginning was the word... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so much does he echo it that verse three, he begins by talking about how everything was made through him. So he's echoing Genesis. Notice that he doesn't start in the beginning God, but in the beginning was the word. And he goes, that the, tells us the word was with God and the word was God. Now we can't do this book or passage any justice without understanding this term, the word. Now this term has been grappled with throughout history. If you've ever picked up a commentary on the Gospel of John, I am sure that you have seen some of the discussion on this term, the word. So what does he mean by the term word? Isn't that a strange way to say it? To our ears, in the beginning was the word. I, I, I mean, I just when I think about it, I, I would never approach it that way because I'm, I'm Southern, I'm kind of a simple guy. I, I just, I couldn't do it. But John is, uh, this, John's doing it better, right? He, he, he's, got, he's got a purpose. What does he mean by that? The English translation when it gives us the term word as one commentator says, doesn't do the Greek term logos justice. The word logos can refer to a bunch of different things. Our word for word is something we say. It can refer to an inner thought. Or as F.F. Bruce says, a word is a means of communication, the expression of what is in one's mind. So we say a word. That's pretty Simple definition. But the word logos means a little bit more than the term word. Some have argued that it might be translated as the message. The message of the gospel, that is. In other words, Jesus would be God's message to the world. And that's not unhelpful. I think that can be helpful. Some have argued that he's drawing on Greek philosophy, the philosophers uh, saw this term logos as a principle of reason or order which was imminent in the universe. It is this principle which imposes form on the material world and constitutes the rational soul in man. But they saw this logos, as they called it, that, that which gives order and reason to the world, they saw it as impersonal. And John is giving it personhood. John's not drawing on the Greek philosophers, although in his using that, I think he is meaning to draw some of them in, and he's successful at that. Even the famed Christian apologist Justin Martyr was drawn to the Gospel of John as John holds forth in the beginning was the Logos. F.F. Bruce says, if we understand this term logos in the prologue as word in action, then we may begin to do it justice. More than just speech, but speech in action. Remember, John grew up a Jewish boy, reading and knowing the Old Testament or certainly reciting and hear it, hearing it audibly over and over and over and memorizing it. You cannot help but know as you read this book that John is steeped in the Old Testament writings. How does the Old Testament use this term word? Think of creation. Again, in our context, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, how did God create? He spoke. 
Let there be light. And there was. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. God simply speaks and his word creates. His word accomplishes the action of his mind. That's what God's word does. Psalm 107, verse 19 and 20. They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distresses. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Isaiah 55, 11. My word... God says, that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the thing, that which I propose or purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And I just want to say, you read those two verses and try not to see Jesus doing those things. I'm not entirely sure why John leaned so hard into the personification of this term logos to begin the gospel. But I think that D.A. Carson probably draws us closest to it when he says this. In short, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply his title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son. I think that's helpful. That's what Jesus is, God's ultimate self-disclosure. So what does he say? In the beginning was the word, and when you read word, you ought to think Jesus. Why? Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. In, in verse 1, John says in the beginning what he's doing, he's, he's taking the word and then he's applying personal characteristics to it, and then he tells us that that word became flesh and dwelt among us, and, and don't forget, in case you don't, maybe you don't know this, and you're going to learn. When it says dwelt, that's the same word as tabernacled. I like the way the King James translates that. Tabernacled. Why? What, what is the tabernacle but God amongst his people? That, that, that's the language that John is drawing on. And the word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. The flesh is the tent of the Lord in that instance. And as that person, the Word, he was in the beginning. This is preexistence. So he can be called the Alpha, the first. Turn over to Jude chapter 1 for a moment, if you have your Bible. Jude's that little book, it's one chapter right before the revelation of Jesus Christ, right before the end. Listen to how Jude speaks of the eternality, the, the, the pre-existence of, of both God and Jesus. Listen, he says, verse 25. Actually, we'll read 24 too. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, or before any age, and now, and forever, amen. You can't have glory, majesty, and dominion, and authority be to God through Jesus Christ before all time, unless Jesus is with God before all time. Turn over to 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 9. Well, actually, I'll just share with you. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9 tells us that God gives us grace in Jesus Christ or in Christ Jesus before the ages begin, before time. In the beginning was the Word. This also implies existence. 
that does not come from outside him. When it says, in the beginning was the word. He, not that he is the beginning. That could be said of him. But in the beginning was the word implies that existence does not come at, from outside him. Listen to the Nicene Creed. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before ages began, begotten, not made. And in case you miss it, in case you don't see it in that first phrase, go down to verse 3, and it says all things were made through him. And that ought to be enough for us right there that, that John is holding out for us. He's creator. But he goes forward and says, and without him was not anything not anything, literally not one thing, made that was made. In other words, he himself cannot be created because without him nothing was made. You cannot create yourself. He's essential. He was not made. He's not a part of creation. We note as we read in the beginning was a word that the biblical worldview insists that the beginning is the start, not of man, not of the earth or just our solar system, but the beginning of everything. Beginning of time and matter. Remember, when is the first day? It's when God makes it. Let there be light and it was so. Morning and evening, the first day. It all begins there with God making it. Jesus himself is going to astonish others by saying things like, before Abraham was, I am. They're going to crucify him because they say, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. You see, the Jews rightly understood what Jesus was claiming about himself, and yet for some reason, we in this century have a hard time understanding what he's claiming about himself, and John lays it out very clear what he's claiming about Jesus, that Jesus should not have been crucified because he was not blaspheming. Why? Because he was God in the flesh. How can we know? In the beginning was the Word. Now, when, if he just left that statement, in the beginning was the word, we would have to conclude one of two things. The word either was with God, because Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, or the word was God, because Genesis 1. D.A. Carson points out this. John insists both things are true. That not only was Jesus in the beginning, with God, the Word was God. And perhaps you haven't felt the gravity of those truths lately, Christian. With God, was God. When you pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, is that anywhere near your mind or your heart? Or perhaps you're one of those people who lets this name roll off your tongue as a common curse word, which I hear so much more often now than I did growing up. Is that what's in their mind? The Word was with God and the Word was God. What it does at this is it highlights the Word's distinction from God, highlights His equality with God, and highlights His personhood. Again, John puts Christ on the same level with God when he says, in the beginning the Word was with God. He puts Him equal with God in both personhood in his existence, and in his time, when he exists. MacArthur says this, this statement teaches us that the word was in intimate fellowship with God the Father throughout all eternity. Jesus himself, in his prayer, 
John 17, 5 says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. John's not writing something that Jesus wouldn't approve of. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed, John says. Jesus says, excuse me. This is so central that verse two, when it says the word was with God, verse two is going to to restate it. He was in the beginning with God. Christian, do not let your heart be dull when you hear this. Be moved. Be mystified. Be astounded. Marvel and worship the living God. Remember, John wants you to read this book in light of this. Think of who this man is who took on flesh and dwelt among you. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Brothers and sisters, the whole goal of Christianity is to be with God. If that is not your goal, I'm going to tell you one of two things. Either one, you're not a Christian, or number two, you need to very quickly repent of what you are looking forward to because that is the goal, to be with the living God. That is what we lost when Adam and Eve sinned. But Jesus was with God in eternity past, in perfection, in purity, having all the glory unto himself. He's there seeing the Father's face eternally, never sorrowing, never hungering, never thirsting, never feeling the pain of loss or suffering, all the things that plague us. Jesus had all the things that plague us never at that point, throughout all eternity. And yet, and yet, the Word became flesh. Left the presence of the Father and the Word became flesh and lived among us. Who did he live among? He lived among the poorest people in the world, not even having a home. All of us are gonna go home tonight and sleep on nice, cushy beds. We're all gonna have our belly full. He, he's fasting in this world. He's even going to the extent of, of praying such that he's, he's staying up all night and his disciples can't do that and he's bleeding. All of this, he goes through all of this. Why does he leave the presence of God and take on flesh? Be astounded, Christian. Jesus says, I came into this world that though, for judgment that those who do not see may see. So that you blind people who don't know you're walking in sin can see. And you can see your sin and turn from it. Jesus came into the world. Why? Paul says, to save sinners. Jesus says, I came in the world to give my life as a ransom for many he left the presence of the Father to save you and your loved ones so that you might not continue on in sin, but that you might have eternal life. He might be in his presence, back with him, with the Father. He left that so that you could have it. And you ask, how did he come to do these things? He's born of a virgin. Run-of-the-mill thing, right? One time in all of history, born of a virgin. Taking on flesh that way so that he didn't take on our sin nature. He lived a perfect life. So perfect that he, he completely obeyed all the law of Israel. And in case you're wondering, that's a big deal. Just go and read the law of Israel, the first five books in the Bible, and you'll be astounded how often you break so many of those laws. And he preached the good news of the king. Excuse me. He preached the good news of the kingdom of God. And what, was, what happened to him? Left his father 
and the, he came to his own, they did not receive him. They rejected him. Crucify him, give us Barabbas. We want the murderer, crucify that man. He's tortured and killed, crucified by wicked men. He was buried, and three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering death and sin in the grave for all who believe in him. Jesus left the Father's side to go through all of that for you, Christian. I, I just want, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fill it in for you right here. Hallelujah. Yet, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He wasn't just in the presence of God. He was God, and we say he is God in the flesh. And in case we miss that being in the beginning with God and being God, he, excuse me, in case we miss that he was in the beginning and he was with God, he plainly says the word was God. Now, I suppose you've probably at this point in your life met a Jehovah's Witness and, or maybe a Muslim who say that isn't the right translation. Well, brothers and sisters, it is very easily the most proper translation. And if you want further clarification, just go to verse 3 with them because verse 3 makes it clear he was not a created being. In fact, the Greek text demands the word was God. Greek is very clear on this. Paul himself says to the Philippian church, Christ Jesus was in the form of God before he came and took on flesh. What you have to remember as you think about this phrase, the word was God, is a Jew would not write this statement. Jews know the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. They know Isaiah 45, I alone am the Lord, and besides me there is no God. Besides me there is no other, the Lord says. So why would John write it? Has he abandoned the Old Testament? No. John writes it because he believed in and he loved Jesus Christ, and he believed this truth with his whole heart. So when you read this, he's writing it to make a major point at the very beginning of the gospel. We are doing something in some ways artificial when we read this gospel and look at just a few verses at a time. The way this is meant to be read is like every other book where you pick it up and you read. And that phrase, the word was God, is meant to inform you throughout the book. So when you read about Jesus, and you read him say, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You must be reading that this is God in the flesh saying these things and not just your average Joe dude running around the world saying these things. And the word was God. So, when we as Christians articulate a Trinitarian theology that there is one God in three persons, we are not philosophers coming up with a new way of thinking about things. That's not what was happening in the third and fourth centuries. What was happening is People were looking at the Bible and saying, we have to conclude this because it's testified to throughout the New Testament and even alluded to in the Old Testament as we see throughout the New Testament. So what do we do with these things? 
I want to conclude with three points of application, and I'll try to go quickly through these. The first application, chapter one of John. We must reject false doctrine, particularly in the person of Christ, because that's, that's where false doctrine is most often addressed. It was early in the Christian church when the Arian heresy arose. This is a man named Arius went around saying, there, was, there once was a time when the word was not. He's directly contradicting the Trinitarian theology. And brothers and sisters, we have a great deal of gratitude to a, a young, oh well, I guess he wasn't young at this time, a small man named Athanasius. Because pastors throughout the, the church were saying, well yeah, that makes sense. And it was, it was Athanasius who said, look at the word of God. What does it say? And more and more begin to look and see, yeah, this Jesus, son of God, is the word they said is truly God and truly man. Really God and really man. So we have to reject false views. That's what, that's what they did. We must reject the Mormon view. Did you know that, this is directly from their own words, Mormons believe that all men and women ever to be born, including Jesus Christ, live with God as his spirit children before this life? That is not what Christians believe. We do not believe that each one of us had an eternal soul with God before this life. That is a Mormon view. In, the, in fact, in their view, they believe Jesus came from procreation. That's why Jesus is called the Son of God in their view. We must reject the Islamic view that says he was just a man. We even must reject the Jewish view. And I, and, and I want to say, when I say the Jewish view, I mean what is espoused in John 8.41 when they say we were not born of sexual immorality to Christ. They are rejecting his pre-existence. They are saying, you, sir, were born of sexual immorality. You, sir, were not born of a virgin. They are saying, you, sir, are not. The word became flesh. We must reject that. We must reject the mystical view that says he's some sort of God or some sort of magician. No. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord, there is no other besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Either the Lord is a triune God, so that the Son of God, the person of Jesus Christ, is one with the God of the Old Testament or he's not. And the Christian view has been plain for centuries. He is truly God and truly man. And our God is a triune God. Brings me to point number two. We must believe right doctrine. You can't go to heaven with your own personal beliefs about Jesus unless those personal beliefs are according to the word of the living God. You have devised your own plans. You have made gods after your own image if you do such. Listen, brothers and sisters, our doctrine stirs up our heart to love and good deeds. John starts with doctrine and the person of Jesus so that you would worship him and worship through him and love him and share this good news with everyone that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made, and for us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made a human. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will 
never end. Do you believe that? And application number three. How do you read this book of John? F.F. Bruce says this, John intends that the whole of his gospel be read in light of this verse. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous. Do you hear that? You read this book as the deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God, because that's what John says right at the beginning. If that's not true, that book is blasphemous, and it ought to be burned. But if it is true, if it is true, believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what shall we say to these things? You are a God worthy of all praise and glory and honor. By your Son, we are brought near to you. Lord, we, we who are, are sinners, who are broken, who, who in, in every way are beyond repair apart from the saving work of Christ, Lord, we, we turn to you today. We pray that you would help, help us to, to just begin to uh, under, understand these, this gospel, this doctrine of, of the Trinity, this doctrine of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and three persons, Lord, we, we believe these things. We don't understand them fully, but we trust in you to help us that we might give you praise and glory and honor, and we pray, Lord, today that any here who do not know you would repent of their unbelief. They would see Christ in all his majesty and run to him, the Savior of their soul. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.